You know, if you pick up your Bible and you begin to read the story of Scripture, you start reading through the Old Testament and you find the narrative of a people who cycle through this endless cycle of uh, doing a pretty good job, uh, being grateful for the blessing of God, following the commands and the things that God asks of them, but it never lasts. And uh, within a few pages, you'll find that they're back where they started, where they slowly just gravitate back to this uh, internal uh, need to to live for themselves, to, to be ungrateful, to always think that they know uh, what is best for them. And, and uh, that's always different than what God seems to be doing. And, you know, from our vantage point, to be able to, to know what we know and to have experienced what we experienced, we look at that and we scratch our heads sometimes and we think to ourselves, you know, how is it that uh, they, a people could be so blind and so ungrateful and so hard-hearted and just basically uh, ignorant in so many ways. And then uh, before you get to Matthew chapter 1, before you get to the New Testament, there's a uh, just in the turning of that one page, what, what is not reflected in Scripture is the 400 years of silence that uh, span the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament where God is silent. And basically, man has just turned to his own devices. Uh, humanity has just returned to what they always return to, what we always do, and that is we begin to fend for ourselves, look for our own uh, desires and passions, uh, try to build ourselves up, make the best life that we can make for ourselves, and um, and really just push God completely out of the way. So as you begin to read the New Testament, what's so astonishing is that exactly what the video depicts, in that uh, it's it's utterly unconscionable. It's it's hard to even imagine that the God who has done so much for humanity, who has revealed Himself in unmistakable ways, the God who has clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, shown His goodness towards mankind, his desire to want to help, his desire to want to bless, his desire to, to lead, guide, and direct. And all man has done is spurned him and turned the other cheek. And yet, God then does the unthinkable. He sends his son into the world. The incarnation is really uh, just one of the most astonishing things that I, I, don't, I, I don't know that I'll ever fully get my mind around the reality that God came to this earth as a man. That He was born in a manger. That He, that he cried and that He felt hunger. That He felt need. And the more that I learn about heaven, the more that I, I, I begin to grasp the, the glory and splendor and righteousness and holiness of God, the more astonishing it is to imagine that God would leave behind the glory of heaven, the preeminence of the throne room of God and come to this earth and live as a human being and humble Himself in such an astonishing way and live among people and that even then the condemnation of this world would be that light came into the world and men rejected it, that we chose our darkness, that in the midst of all of that we still said, no, we want to live for ourselves. We want, to, we want to accomplish that which we want to accomplish. We want to build our own kingdoms. We're not really interested in your kingdom. And really, the battle in every heart rages on today. It rages on in this room right now. It rages on inside of each and every one of us every moment of every day. The battle between what we ought to be doing, what we were created to do, and what we want to do. You see, no matter who you are this morning, no matter what your standing is before God, you, like me, are a reflective 
creature. You were created in the image of God and therefore you reflect a certain glory. That if, if you were to come over to my house, if you were to meet my family for the very first time, it wouldn't take you long to begin to notice the things that we uh, live for, the things that are our priorities, the things that... Um, are important to us, and the same is true for you, that it would begin maybe with simple things like um, the way you dress and the, uh, the, the, the logos maybe that you display on your T-shirts or the things, the stickers that are on the back of your car that depict things that, that are, you're passionate about, uh, teams that you want to win or places that you grew up or maybe a school that you went to that you're proud of or the names of your children that you uh, want the world to know, whatever the case may be. That There's nothing wrong with any of that, but it just depicts the reflective nature of who we are, that we simply cannot live without reflecting some sort of glory. That no one is just bland. No one just exists in, in just complete anonymity without any, uh, w- without any reflective nature within them. It, it doesn't happen that way. None of you do that. I don't do that. And what happens is, is that we, we, try, to, we try to span this... this chasm, if you will. Maybe maybe it's similar to the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Maybe we try to live in this 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament where so many people are caught in the center, where we're trying to be Christians and we call ourselves Christians. Maybe we attend church and we know some Bible verses and we, you know, do things that Christian people do, but, but really our lives reflect the reality that other things are our glory. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that there's something that all of us talk the most about. That when you're together with your family, it dominates your conversation. When you're together with your friends, that's what you talk about. When you're uh, at work, that's what you talk about. There's certain things that tend to dominate your consciousness. They're the things that you think about. They're the things that you put your resources in. They're the things that you work the hardest at. They're the things that you always seem to find the time to accomplish. And then there's other things that sometimes, oftentimes, many times, sadly, we say with our mouth are are really priorities in our life and really are important and we declare their goodness, but we never seem to find the time to do them. There's always other things that crowd into Those things. And deep down in our hearts, we know that it's hypocrisy. But we push against the reality that we know is true. And we try to just live in the tension between what we actually do and what we know we ought to do. Now, the Bible explains exactly why this is. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the Scripture gives us a clear indication by describing Jesus. The Bible actually gives us indication and description, description of, of who we are as those created in His image. The Scripture says this in Hebrews chapter 1, "...His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He, might, he made the worlds..." This one, his son, Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. The scripture says that Jesus, the the incarnate God who dwelt among us, is the brightness, the fullness, the most reflective thing that has ever been and ever will be of the glory of God, that he is the full brightness of the glory of God. And that God created us for His glory. And in doing so, He created us in His image. And because we're created in His image, that's why we're so reflective of that which we prioritize, of that which we, we always show glory all the time of something. And so if you ask yourself, well, why am I here? Well, you're here, you're created, you exist to display the glory of God. Now, whether you do that or not depends on maybe the way that you respond to the message you'll hear this morning. But make no mistake about it, that you are breathing God's air 
in this very moment for the express purpose of bringing glory unto Him. And the brightness, the fullness, the epitome of the glory of God. Don't be confused. It's not complicated. If you say, well, well, what is the glory of God? How do I glorify God? Well, I don't understand that. Well, it's very simple. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is the fullness. He's the epitome. He's the picture of the glory of God. And so as Jesus is emulated in our life, as we live our lives according to the pattern that He laid out for us, God is magnified and glorified in us. And we then exist for the highest and greatest purpose that any human being could ever exist for. And that is the very reason and purpose that that you were created. So all of the amazing passages of Scripture that talk about God knitting you together and putting, forming you and laying out your days before there were any and and how He, He took care of your frame and your nature and your character in your mother's womb. All of those Scriptures are all based around a God who does everything on purpose, who never does anything for no reason, and who has made you exactly the way you are for the utter purpose of bringing Him glory. And so as we take our Bibles, we open to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look in this amazing passage of Scripture this morning, and I just want to draw your attention to the fact that maybe today when this service is over and when you are uh, finished with uh, small group Bible study and you're heading home or back to whatever it is that you'll do this afternoon as you prepare yourself for Connect Group, I just want you to remember and be grateful in your heart for the songs that we sang this morning. Because there's so many times where uh, as I sit and I listen to the choir and I listen to the songs that we sing corporately and I just thank God in my heart because I, I know what I'm about to say and I just recognize and realize. For you, you have to remember back because you don't know what I know. But Trust me when I tell you, it's an astonishing thing to see the way the Spirit of God directs uh, Craig and Jenny and Mickey in making sure that we sing exactly what we need to sing according to the Scripture that we're going to look at. And this morning is no, uh, no exception to that. It's truly a remarkable thing, and I'm grateful and thankful for it. You'll find that on page 1349, by the way, in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a passage of uh, a Bible, you can just follow along there. But really, just to put it simply, let's all uh, come to the place where we're in agreement that uh, whoever we are, our interests, what we love, our priorities are clearly seen by those around us who pay any attention at all to the way in which we live our lives. And it's true even in the bigger things of life. It's not just the small things. It's not the it's not sort of the, you know, the the, the way you the way you uh, decorate your house or the or the kinds of foods you like, but the bigger things, the way in which you manage your family, the way in which you manage your time, your the way you take care of yourself, your your level of devotion to your career and as well, your relationship with God. All of those things are clearly seen. And those priorities, whatever they are for you and whatever they are for me, are constantly being tested. They're constantly being challenged. There's always seems like a war against that which we uh, seek to prioritize in our lives. And so, undoubtedly, there's some people here this morning and uh, the testi- testimony of your life is that you... you, you you work very hard. You get up every day and you, you go to a job that takes a lot out of you and it takes a great deal of your time and you are not able to spend the time with your family that you want to spend. But you continue to get up and go to work and to push forward. And there's always this tension between, uh, you know, is it worth it? Am I, am I doing the right thing? And I'm missing out on this and I'm missing out on that. And if we're not careful, what happens is we begin to live to climb the corporate ladder or to be able to supply uh, what it takes to, to operate a life at the, at the level of comfort that we've established. But it comes at a great cost. 
because you can never get those moments back. You can never get time back. See, there's so many things that we want to get done. There's so many things on your list this morning. There's so many things that you hope to accomplish. But somehow, other things that aren't even necessarily on the list always manage to bump these things off the list. Somehow, there just never seems to be enough. Our daily schedule, if we're not careful becomes our God. You know, we can say good things. We can say that we want to be healthier. We can say that we want to take better care of ourselves, that we want to start exercising, that we want to spend more time in prayer, that we want, to, we want to read good books. We want to spend more time with the Lord and read Scripture. These are good things, but somehow, some way, they never seem to get accomplished. There's always something beckoning for our attention. And somehow, what is it in us that bows to lesser things over and over and over? And when will it be that we will finally drive a stake in the ground and take a stand against the tyranny of the urgent that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy all the good things in our life? You see, ultimately... All of our priorities are going to be made known. They're going to come out. All of, the, all of the things that are inside of your heart, all of the things that you truly live for, the things that you dwell on, think about, meditate, those things are going to come out. We're ultimately, the reason for that is because we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to find a way... We're going to make the time. We're going to get the resources to do the things that we really and truly care about. We get done what we really want to get done. And so many times they're not the things that we ought to get done. And so if our careers, if our lifestyle dominate our lives and get the best that we have to offer, then... At the end of the day, we really can't say that our families are more important than our careers because we gave our best to that which we prioritized the most. I recognize it's a hard word to hear. It's a, it's a reality we don't want to think about, but it's the truth. And if you think about this question, if you, if you think about what determines whether you do right or wrong in a specific situation, when you come to a fork in the road, a crossroads in your life, what determines whether you go to the left or to the right? What determines whether you're going to do what God would have you to do or whether you're going to go where the crowd wants you to go? Are there certain areas in your life, are there certain circumstances, situations, places or people that whenever you're in those places or around those people, you always tend to do what you shouldn't do? Do you always leave certain places feeling guilty, certain people feeling guilty and always asking yourself, why is it that I succumb to pressure in those situations? What does that tell you? It tells you that your ultimate priority is what other people think. Your ultimate priority is acceptance. It's not what God would have you to do. And I think the first thing that we need to do this morning is just be realistic about the struggle that we're in and each and every one of you in your own heart and in your own context and in your own place, you need to be realistic about where you are in this battle. Because otherwise, you're going to think a lot of thoughts and you're going to declare some certain things in your mind this morning, but they will never get done, they'll never happen and nothing's ever going to change. It starts with the reality of saying, you know, that's... That's really who I am. That's really where I am. I sit here this morning and I know that there are so many things I should do differently. But, and I want to do that, but somehow I just never seem to get there. Well, let me help you by just drawing your attention to the fact that it's going to happen anyway. That all of us have been 
terminally diagnosed. In other words, that all of us are going to face death at some point in our life. And when that day comes, death is the great exposer. Death will bring forth the reality of what really our priorities were and what we really lived for. Death is the great equalizer. And so it, it, it's touched probably every life in this room in some way. We've all lost people that we love, that we care about. We've, we've lost people to various diseases or accidents or just simply old age, but it's painful nonetheless. But we recognize and realize in death that it doesn't matter how great a life you build on, built on this earth. It doesn't matter how much money you amassed. It doesn't matter how hard you worked or how great your kingdom was. When you die, you die. And you can't take any of it with you. And that everything that matters comes to the forefront. Because we stand before God, either as His son or His daughter, as His friend or as His enemy. But one way or another, we stand. And the truth then comes to bear upon our lives. But you see, there's a way around death. There is a way to escape death. That the incarnation, the story of God leaving heaven and coming to this earth is the story of life. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of a, a fresh start, a brand new beginning. The, the, the power to do what you were powerless to do before. The, the opportunity that you've always dreamed of really and truly, is the story of Jesus. And the Bible puts it this way in John chapter 1 of Jesus. The Scripture says that all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. You see that He in Himself, as the representation of the glory of God, represented life. He brought life. He brought the light of life to men. That when He came, that when He revealed Himself, that when He... He set out to live the life we could never live and to die the death that we all deserve to die. He then brought the opportunity to escape death and to live life. But nothing changed in the sense that all of our priorities will still come to bear. You see, every person, every person, saved or unsaved, the truth of what you lived your life for will ultimately be exposed. And so Jesus comes to give life, to break uh, the bondage, to give us a way to live, a way to experience life, not just life, but life abundantly. I want you to be honest this morning. I want you to take inventory of your checkbooks, of your resources, of where you put your best. What does your schedule say about what matters most to you? What are your ambitions? What are your dreams? What are the overriding principles that, that cause you to uh, make decisions in raising your children and influencing the generation to come? You see, it's not what's spoken. It's not what we say we care about. It's what we actually do. It's what we live for. That's the truth. We've perfected the art of saying one thing, but yet doing another. Is God really first in our lives? Is the reality of who we are and who He is come to bear upon you? That's really the message of I am second. That's the whole question. I am second is not... It's not this radical way of life. I am second is the only way to live as a Christian. It's, it's the, it is the life of a Christian. And so, I am first is simply the description of life apart from Christ. That's what it is. And we're going to look at what Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is already first. He's always been first. He'll always be first. And that's never going to change. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. 
Paul awakens us to this reality by saying this, Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That Jesus Christ is the preeminent God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And make no mistake about it, just because He humbled Himself in the form of a man and came to this earth, He is still first in all the universe. He is still the express brightness of the glory of God. And so Paul will say to you and me this morning, before you make another step in your mind, before you, before we can move forward in our conversation, we first and foremost have to establish the reality that Jesus is already first and that we've never been first. And that when we put ourselves in the position of being first, it's just a a ruse. It's just a disguise. It's just a, a mirage. But Jesus is supreme and he sits on the throne and we do not. And that's all Paul wants us to begin by understanding. He wants us to know that he's the maker of the universe. He's the sustainer of all existence. He didn't use his position for his advantage. He didn't come to earth as the king that he could have in, in dominance and power and, and glory and rule sovereignly over all things. He didn't do that. He came humbly. He came as a man. He came as the express image of the glory of the God who in his own purpose made it so that we would refer to him as father. You see, it tells us a lot about the God that we serve. It It tells us a lot about the fact that the God of the universe determined that we would call Him Father, that we could have and approach Him as Father, and that His Son would come. The glorious King would leave heaven and humble Himself and come to earth. But He is is the express image of God. He is equal with God. He's fully in the form of God. But when He came to earth, He used his life as an opportunity to live second. He put himself in submission to the purposes of the Father. He used his life to display the priorities, the reality of what God truly sees as important, which is first and foremost his glory. And in that purpose, we are unmistakably able to see God's unmatched love for us. You see, just like the purposes in our life will come to bear upon us, the purposes of God are right there on display for us to see in Scripture. So Jesus, first and foremost, is first, always has been, always will be. But He made Himself second. Notice what Paul says we continue reading verse 7. But He made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And furthermore, verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, unlike us, Jesus was not diagnosed with a terminal death sentence. But Jesus chose death. We don't have that choice, but Jesus did. Jesus didn't have to die. He chose to die. He, as the author of life, chose to yield his life. He stepped down from his position of authority that the purposes and the love and the glory of God might be exalted. He gave up his rights. He hung naked, beaten, bloody, mocked, spit upon, upon a cross and declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here I am, the terrorist, if you will. The, the surrounded by people who have turned their back on me, who have lived for their own glory, who have forsaken the purposes of God. And so the king lays his life down for the subjects, which doesn't tell us nearly as much about the subjects as it does about the king. The fact that he chose to die tells us far more about him than it tells us about us. It does declare to us that we are of great value. It does declare to us that he loves us beyond our wildest imagination. But it tells us far more about him. Because he did what he didn't have to do. He did what no one else would do. He laid his life down for his enemies. 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he got out of the tank, went over to the car and picked us up and and saved our life as we were yet trying to ram our car loaded with explosives of our own glory into his tank. He freely gave up his life in death. He had no guilt. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. And yet he perfectly fulfilled the mission of his life. He didn't deserve our fate of death. He didn't deserve the dishonor of public execution. He didn't deserve the shame of some mock rigged, ridiculous trial of foolish men that he created that had the audacity to put him on trial and to mock him and to accuse him in the midst of all of his innocence and all of his glory, to accuse him of being guilty. The judge allowed himself to be judged. The king allowed himself to be crucified. Supremacy chose to surrender. Dominance appeared demoralized upon the cross. And as baffling as all of that is, it was his choice. He wasn't forced. Notice what the scripture says in verse 8. He humbled himself. It was his choice. He made that decision. He wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced. It wasn't any external pressure. The Bible says in John chapter 10, Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down by myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. He could have in any instant, in any moment, He could have obliterated every person that was there that day, that was mocking Him, that was beating Him, that was, but He chose not to. He himself laid his own life down. He willingly humbled himself for us. And what's more than that, what's more than that, is if that is, is, is already farther than our minds can really wrap around, the Bible says beyond that, that the reality that he humbled himself, that he came, that he accomplished what was unthinkable, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he counted all joy, that the author and the finisher of, our, for, finisher of our faith for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That in the midst of all the suffering and all the shame and all the pain, it was joy in his heart because he knew the fullness of the plan. He knew what was going to take place. He knew the reality of what was being accomplished. He knew that all these years later, There would be lives that continually are transformed. That there would be people who would gather in His name and who would worship Him in spirit and in truth and who would rejoice in the yet God who continues to this moment, to this day, to this very hour, to this very second to redeem lives who has never lost His willingness and His mightiness and His power to save humanity from their sin and to be Lord and Savior and to reign and rule in the hearts of men and women. It's an astonishing thing to think about. The priorities of God. The fact that He didn't talk about it. He didn't uh, waver, but He accomplished it. He did it. He, his life bore the marks of what His priorities and purposes were. You see... Setting priority, saying to ourselves this morning, that feeling that you feel inside about, you know, why have I not been able to do the things I know I need to do? What is this struggle that I face? Understand that these priorities and the setting of them, it's essentially the act of deciding in your mind, mentally making a conscious decision of what you're going to give up in order to do what you really see as important. And whether or not they're accomplished is going to determine the reality of what you say that you believe. Make no mistake about it. You will do today that which you desire most to do. You'll do it. You always do and you always will. You always have. Because you are created as a reflective being who reflects glory. And you cannot not do that. And so Jesus comes and He... He comes as first, but yet he makes himself second. He comes 
completely and utterly established his first, rightly deserving that position. In no way is he threatened and there's no power that can come against him. And yet he willfully puts himself in the position of second. He willfully yields himself to the least likely of all recipients, you and me. And so here we sit this morning. Every evil thought that crosses our mind, every ungodly temptation, selfish motive that fleets across our mind, every ungrateful spirit that we have, all of them just accruing this debt of sinfulness that just continues to build and to build and to build. Every act of disobedience, every wrong intention, it just builds and our account just grows and it grows and it grows. And the Bible says that the wages of this account, that, the, that what we earn through this sin is death. And so this monumental account has been, has been built up And it's our name. It's our personal account. No one else's sin is applied to that account. It's all our own. We all willfully knew it when we did it. We all willfully walked there. We did it anyway and we built it up. And there it is. And we're helpless before it. We're we're hopeless in front of it. What what plan do we have to, to somehow pay it back, to make it up, to fix it, to make it right? We have no, we have nothing to stand on to say, God... Let me into heaven. Forgive my sin. Allow me to to be grafted into your family. We We have no power, no position, no right. We're guilty and condemned. Hopeless. Apart from Christ, where would we be? But what's crazier is that with Christ, some continue to exist in a state as if There were no other option. What Jesus did on the cross through his death is he emptied out the accounts of all of those who are his. But more than that, he then deposited his righteousness in the very accounts of those who were once terrorists against him. That he, he erased the debt of sin, but that he gave the righteousness of his life in our place. That he who knew no sin might become sin for us. That we might be the righteousness of God in him. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that anyone, that anyone would, would toy with the reality of their standing in Christ. That anyone would, would, would would take lightly the reality, the gravity of where you are this morning. That all of what I've said and everything that you feel and know is true in your heart, that somehow what other people think or somehow what you are, are so afraid of for whatever reason, somehow it, it's, it's, it's what, what you might lose or what God might take from you or whatever the case may be, that you would walk away from the greatest opportunity that's ever been conceived of in the history of the universe because of some fear of a lesser thing. And in the same exact way that we know what we ought to do, yet we don't do it. Who's here this morning apart from Christ? And you nod your head and you, you look at the scripture and you know I'm not making this up. And yet lesser things will come between you and him. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. That God would call men to give their life, to proclaim in every context, from every rooftop, from every nation, to every people, the greatest news that could ever be heard. And that people wouldn't listen. And that people that we know and people that we love and people that we walk beside would let lesser things steer their life away from 
the most glorious opportunity that anyone could ever know. That God would make a way to pay our debt and to replenish our account with the righteousness of His very Son. You see, the paradox is is that this morning, you all have to make a choice. But God's not forcing Himself on anyone. That we all sit in this room and we all have an account and it's either filled with our own sin or it's filled with the righteousness of Christ. There's no in-between. There's no back and forth. It's either one or it's the other. I can't make that choice for you. Only you can make that choice for yourself. Only you can determine what is going to be the priority of your life. What are going to be the things that you actually live for? Is it going to be the reality that God is your Lord and Savior and that your highest purpose on this earth is to live for His glory? Or is it going to be a lesser thing? Is it going to be to to be successful? Is it going to be to be secure? Is it going to be to raise well-rounded children? Are you going to devote your time to building a life that other people would look at and say, now there's a good life, there's a good family, there's a, there's a comfortable way to live. There's, they're wonderful people. But someday you'll die and your priorities will come to bear on your life. And a lot of things that are good things, they're not going to matter a whole lot, are they? The grades that our kids made in school, not going to seem that important in that moment, are they? The accolades, the awards, the things that we got, the money that we were able to save, the security we were able to provide, the things we were able to experience, the places we were able to go, all the glorious things that the world had to offer us. None of which are bad. But the question is, are they worth being supreme in your life. Well, Paul goes on and he tells us what happens when the one who becomes first makes himself second. So in verse 9, he continues and says, Therefore, because of what we've already established, because the one who's preeminently first always has been and always will be has made himself second, therefore God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name. That at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And that at that very name, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That make no mistake about it, that every priority will come to bear, and that every person's first will be made known. That every person, every angel, every demon, every single created thing will bow the knee and declare with the tongue that Jesus Christ is first. It's going to happen. It's unavoidable. There's no option to it that everyone, whether you know Christ and spend eternity with him in heaven or whether you reject him and spend eternity in hell, you will declare the glory of God in the supremacy and the position of first of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. And so if that's going to happen anyway, if that's the ultimate end of all of this, that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess, if ultimately that's the course that all of eternity is heading on, if that's the end that we all get to, then the question that... Seems so obvious this morning is what would it look like if you began to live your life for the glory of God, which is coming to bear anyway? That what in the world went so wrong that men and women who have heard the gospel, who are familiar with the gospel, who have been around the gospel, who have even professed the gospel, would allow such foolishness to come between you and the purpose for which 
You were created to live. You see, what would happen? What would happen this morning if you, in in your wealth, in your comfort, in your prosperity, if you began to ask the question, God, how can this be leveraged for your glory in my life? Or others of you this morning, in your pain, in your suffering, in your sickness, if you ask the question, God, how can this be leveraged in my life for your glory? You see, either way, logic wins out. It makes utterly no sense to cling to all the things that you're so afraid to lose when in fact you'll ultimately lose it all anyway, or then to lower your heads in in sorrow and disbelief because of the things that you think you don't have. The things that God hasn't done for you. And allow that to stand between you and the glory of God. Either way, it makes no sense. The firstness of God will come to bear on all of our lives. The question is, will we submit to Him now or later? Which side will you be on when those under the earth bow their knee and confess with their tongue? With those above the earth who bow their knee and confess with their tongue. When every person who ever lived in every context, in every nation, every tongue, in every circumstance, with every excuse and every reason in the world, with every opportunity and every reminder of poverty, every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Will you? Will you say, God, in this brief life that you've given me, rather than live in the regret of yesterday and squandered opportunities and things that I've missed, right now today you've given me life. What if I leverage my life in the place I am right now? What if I take my broken family relationships and I begin to leverage it for your glory? What if I take my good, solid family relationships and begin to, to leverage it for your glory? God, what if I take my job? What if I take my resources? What if I take the things that, that you've given me and I begin to leverage them for your glory? The greatest opportunity that, that, that anyone could ever have is right before us this morning, right there. And that is not to make Jesus first, because he's already first. But to bow our knee now and to recognize him for who he already is and what he's already done. And make sure, make sure that what reflects out of our lives is the brightness of the glory of God who sent His Son to this earth to live a life, to die a death, and to make a way for you and me, regardless of what we face in this life. There's no, there's no fear of death in Christ. That He came to bring life, eternal life. That in 10,000 years it hadn't even begun It's not even a drop in the bucket. But what we see with our human eyes is just a dot. It's just a a vapor. Let's don't make the mistake of making this vapor our ultimate priority. Let's stand, bow our heads for just a moment and close our eyes. 
And it's a moment for us to just reflect on what God has spoken into our lives, all that we have experienced today together, and to just respond to Him in truthfulness and honesty and openness. To be able to come and kneel at the altar and, and just thank God and ask God to continue to help us and to work in our hearts to, to come and to, to say, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of playing games. I'm, I've given my life to Christ, but I've been too ashamed. I, I've squandered the opportunity to, to come and make that public. Well, today, let's do that today. Today you come and, and say, I, I'm a Christian and I want the world to know that. I want to live for the purpose for which I've been created. But today I want to come and, and join this family of faith and plant my life here and grow here and assume my rightful place in the family of God. Whatever your need is, whatever your hurt is, whatever your sorrow is, let's stop the tyranny of the urgent. Let's say no to the lesser things that steal away the ultimate joy and purpose for which we Exist, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for each one here this morning, every man, every woman, every young person, every child. Lord, thank you. Thank you that I can know for sure in my heart that none of us are here by accident. Lord, that you desire to do a work in all of our lives, that we're all we're all undone. We're all on this journey somewhere. And God. Thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you for those who you're speaking to so clearly right now. And Lord, I just pray for courage. I pray that you would grant great courage to just respond. Lord God, that that this wouldn't be another day about what we say, but it would be a day about what we do. That real, genuine, authentic change would begin today. That we would assume our place as second. That everywhere we go, we would tell people about who is first and how great it is to be second, how amazing it is to be second, and how the one who's first came to this earth and made himself second, and God exalted him, and how as we live our lives on this earth as second, we will one day say goodbye to this earth and we'll be exalted to heaven. That there's a place at the table of the feast of heaven for every son and every daughter And how wonderful and how glorious that is. That every person here this morning has an opportunity to live a life for the glory of God. And we thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The altar's open. You come. Pray for those around you. Pray for those who who come and kneel and pray at the altar. Whatever your need is this morning, know that God knows. He loves you. He's He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's drawing you unto Himself. He's saying, I am a good God and I love you. Respond to Him. We'll wait. We're here. The other pastors are here. We're here to pray for you, to encourage you in whatever way we can. You just come.